good morning, Genesis House. Uh, I'll give you another 30 seconds or so to organize yourself. But let's turn to John, turn to John 17, verse 6. John 17, verse 6, while we get ready. And uh, things quiet down. <laughs> John 7, yeah, that's right. 17.6. Just uh, a word. I know last week I did Revelation, or not Revelation, I did a end times uh, sort of flow chart with the order of events, and I am intending to do a part two. But this week was an impossibility to get that done. It was uh, uh, too many things in the go, and that takes a tremendous amount of dedication <laughs> to pull that, that one off. So I'll be studying that over time, and uh, when I'm ready for part two, I'll reveal it to you and just give you a quick reminder of what we did the previous time. So it is in the back of my mind, um, but I won't be able to do it for a little while yet, um, just because of time and other, other responsibilities. So I thought we'd go back to the book of John, and we haven't been here for a while anyway. So just to let you know that we haven't, or I haven't forgotten about part two, but uh, we'll just be a bit. Part of the reason, church, is I've got an ordination meeting, or I, I have to get ordained as the time goes on, and I have a few interviews to go through, and I have one in Regina, October 28th. And uh, they require a lot of paperwork and theological questions and character questions from me. And so I've been spending my, my spare time preparing those answers for them on the side outside of like, Sunday morning prep. So uh, they've kind of given me extra work to do. And that's why something like uh, the, the part two of the flow chart uh, needs to be my full undivided attention. It's just so intense. So. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, you can pray for me though for the 28th of October because that's that'll be coming up soon, and I don't want to get booted out of the denomination. <laughs> yeah, we'll go. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's stand and read together, Church, uh, John chapter 17, verse 6 to 19. This is Jesus praying. I have manifested your name to the men who you've given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I gave, have given to them, and they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that you may be one, sorry, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, 
that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Lord, uh, when we read this prayer, it, it uh, may, you know, seems a bit confusing as a listener trying to figure out exactly what you're trying to say. And even as the person preparing for it this week, it was often confusing in terms of what you're trying to say. I would just ask you now that you just help me understand through the work I've done this week and through your Spirit's guidance, a way of making it clear to the church what you're trying to get across in your prayer and your petition here. And I just ask that uh, truth would only be said and truth would be discovered. And that you would just help me sort out what was from you and what's from me. I look forward to our time together and for a time of great discussion afterwards. And uh, may our hearts and minds be open and prepared to hear what you have to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, since it's been a while since we've been in the book of John, I'll just remind you where we left off. Uh, Jesus is with the disciples during the Last Supper. He's going to be crucified in just hours. And they've just finished the Passover meal, and First Communion has taken place. And so Jesus now breaks out into prayer, and he prays this extensive prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer uh, in, Christ, in Christian circles. And he prays for three groups of people. First, himself, in verses 1 through 5. He prays for future believers like you and I in 20 to 26. But he prays here in verses 6 through 19 for his disciples, his, his, his 11 guys that are remaining. And I don't know if you noticed this in the intro or not when we were reading this, but the word world, the word world occurs numerous times in this passage. Um, it occurs 13 times, 13 times, and there's only 13 verses that we read. So that's basically, he mentions the world, word world 13 times in 13 verses. It gives you a clue then of what the prayer is about in relationship to the disciples. He's praying for something in relationship to the world that his disciples are going to face. And I want to just say that I think we're going to divide the prayer into two sections. He, he pr prays, A, for protection from the world, protection from the world, and then he also prays for sanctification from the world. And today in this message, we're going to do his protection from the world, and next week we'll do his sanctification from the world, okay? So when you see recurrences in the scriptures, it's often a clue of what the passage is about. And so Jesus is praying for his disciples in relationship to the world now that he's about to leave. Now the key verse in which we find Jesus asking for the disciples' protection is actually found in verse 11 and 12. Let's read that with me. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. So again, Christ, Jesus comes to the Father and says, keep them in your name to the same degree that I was keeping them in your name. What did he mean by this? What kind of protection or keeping, in, keeping them in their name did he mean? Well, I can say with certainty that he did not primarily mean physical protection. It wasn't physical protection from persecution. In fact, that same night in, in, uh, the, at the Last Supper, in chapter 16, he says this to them in verse 2. They will make you outcasts in the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. 
So he tells them, um, by the way, guys, if you follow me and you live out my mission for you, you're eventually going to lose your life for the sake of me. So this keeping in your name then can't mean primarily physical protection because he's already promised them just minutes earlier that there's going to be trials and suffering for these guys. So what was he asking for? I would suggest from the passage that the disciple, he was asking for the disciples to be protected from any kind of deception or delusion that would lead them away from the truth of God's word. He was praying for any protection for them with regards to deception or delusion from the, the departure from the truth of the gospel message. And I think we can substantiate this from verses 6 through 8. Notice in verse 6 that Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the world. We've looked at this before um, a few weeks ago, but the word manifest means to reveal or make known. Reveal or make known. So how did Jesus do this? Well, first he revealed God's name or made the disciples know of God's name in his character. right? Because Jesus was God in the flesh. Uh, whenever his personality was on display in the three-year ministry with them, he was revealing God's nature to them. So when the disciples saw him interact with other people, it's as if God was interacting. When he saw them, him respond to certain situations, it was as if God was responding that way. So for example, when he chose to show compassion, it'd be as if God was showing compassion. When he chose to forgive, it'd be the same way God would. When he'd confront false teaching, it'd be the same way God would. If he was to enter into conflict and try to resolve it, it'd be in total harmony with God's character and his nature. The second way then he revealed God's name was not only in character, but also in by his words. Look at verse 8. He says this, For the words which you have given me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you. And then in verse 6, he defines them in, at the bottom of the second, or like the last half of verse 6, he says, And they have kept your word. So Jesus recognizes that they've been given the word of God, and they've kept the word of God. And so he's revealed God's word to them by the way what he's taught them. And again, because Jesus was God in flesh, whenever he spoke, it was identical to the words that God would have said. So again, Jesus is not some kind of independent, rogue teacher who's coming up with this, 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 his own mandate for how truth is to be applied to life and what Christianity is. He's actually just repeating and saying things that God would have said to them as if he was in their presence. So he's a true, a true image, a true mirror image and reflection of God, of the God of Israel. Now this is important to understand going back to verses 11 to 12, because once we see how Jesus revealed God's name to his disciples through character and word, it's now we can understand how Jesus wanted the Father to keep them in his name. What he wanted God to do was to continue to keep them in the same way that Jesus had. And what did he do? He, he had basically helped shape these men's characters um, by educating them in the ways of God, knowing they were going to become leaders. So whenever there was character issues, he'd speak into the lives. Whenever there was errors in truth, he'd speak into the lives. And now he's asking um, the Father to do the same for him now that he was going to, for, sorry, same for the disciples, knowing he was going to depart and no one was going to be guiding them anymore. I'll give you an example, though, of a, of a character uh, issue that the disciples faced that Jesus had to correct. And, and this is a way of keeping them in the name of God, okay? So remember the disciples in Luke 9? They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest? And they, they're out of this issue of pride and arrogance in their character. 
And what does Jesus do? He takes a little child. You know, he takes one, like, like our little kids here. Like you could take Micah or Levi or, or like Leo or someone. And he takes that child, puts them in the midst of these adults and says to them, unless you become like this child, you're not going to go to the kingdom. In other words, I don't, you're bragging and you're boasting about who's going to be the greatest. You need to have humility. You need to have humility like this little child. And then he, said, he, even, he even uses these words. He says, whoever is least among you is the greatest. So he, again, you see him shaping the character of the disciples, <coughs> keeping them in the name of God. And then how about an error in truth? Well, in John chapter 9, Janice, in John chapter 9, uh, they come upon a blind man. And the disciples say, who sinned that this man was born blind, his parents or did he? Right? Now, what, you know what the ironic thing about that is? They've just come from the temple. <laughs> They've come from the temple where Jesus has been teaching and in, in God's like dwelling place in this holy sanctuary. And then they come out of the temple where they should be like recognizing God in truth. And they come out and they make this untruth statement. Who sinned that this guy was like, it was his parents or him that he's born blind? Now, Jesus, knowing their lack of understanding, corrects their theology. He says, by the way, Sin has nothing to do with the reason they're born blind. It's got nothing to do with it. Neither of them sinned, just so you know. Uh, by the way, boys, this is a Jewish cultural belief that you have here. This is not God's way of thinking. It was a very interesting. So Jesus is constantly, through three years, shaping these men and, uh, in truth and in character. And this is now how we can see why Jesus is, or sorry, what we can see Jesus is asking of the Father. Do the same thing when I'm gone, now that I'm leaving, do the same thing for these men that I've been doing for three years. And the disciples were entering into a very sensitive time. And their faith could easily be overwhelmed, right? I mean, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's not going to be around. And so his, timely, his prayer is timely because he wants his father to pick up where he left off and continue protecting these men, um, knowing that they were going to leave the church one day. But again, this was not only protection from physical harm, although it was granted on, phys on, on occasion, but it was protection from deception, delusion, or potential departure from the truth of the gospel message. And that's a prayer we need to be praying for all of us, church. Listen, you and I are not, uh, are not uh, bulletproof when it comes to deception or delusion, <laughs> right? We easily are vulnerable and fall prey to these things. We easily fall back into the world's way of thinking and are easily deceived. I mean, I'm not trying to, don't raise your hand or anything, but any of you this week or last or this month done anything against the word of God lately? Have you spoken any unkind word this week, this month? Have you been unloving towards somebody? Have you willfully sinned against God's way in a way that you know was an absolute, a truth that you actually just walked in disobedience to? I mean, I've seen a lot of people in my life walk away from the Christian faith. They become delusioned. They become deceived. We have to be constantly immersing ourselves, therefore, in the Word of God and being taught the words of God. We need to be kept, we need to be kept in His name. And so, therefore, church, we need to be praying for one another to persevere in faith. We can learn something from Jesus here. He's praying for, the, for nothing to happen to these men in terms of their spiritual walking away from truth and getting deceived. And we need to be doing the same for one another. None of us are beyond it. And, and neither am I. In fact, I might be the one most susceptible. How many times have you known church leaders who started off so well 
and you and you and you're and you're in 20 years later going what happened to that guy what happened to him he was so strong in the word and he's departing from the truth he's being deceived none of us are none of us are uh, uh, not susceptible to that the pressures of the world the pressures of culture the pressures from within the family whatever so just again we need to be praying for one another we can learn something from Jesus in this some of you, when you go to prayer, don't know what to pray for, right? Or maybe that's not an unfair statement. Maybe it's just me that feels that way sometimes. But sometimes you're thinking, what am I going to pray for? Pray for, put the people's names in Genesis house on a piece of paper and go through, maybe every day, just pick one family. Pray for them in the perseverance of their faith. We're all susceptible to delusion and being deceived. If Adam and Eve could be deceived in a perfect union with God, there's no way we couldn't be deceived in our faith with a fallen nature. So why would Jesus then ask for this kind of protection? Well, I think there's three reasons. First, it was appropriate for Jesus to ask the Father to protect them, knowing that they actually already belong to him. Look at 6. Look at 6a. The first, if I ever use ABC, by the way, in a passage, in a verse, just for interest's sake, if, uh, sometimes verses are long, like 6a will be the first part of the verse, 6b will be the second part of the verse, and 6c will be the third, because often there's commas. So you'll often hear people say 6a or 6b, and it just saves you reading through the whole verse, okay? So look at 6a with me. Um, look, at, look at this idea of the disciples belonging to the Father already in 6a. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They're the fathers. Look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 10. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. Okay? So this idea of, of this, uh, the disciples belonging to the Father is, all, is, is very much in Jesus' thinking. That's interesting because in other places in the scripture, uh, Jesus always refers to the disciples as being his disciples. They're his disciples. And the disciples would have understood themselves to be Jesus' disciples. So there's no confusion there. But here's the key church. So completely was Jesus dependent on the Father that basically what was his was the Father's. In other words, there was a unity that Jesus understood between him and the Father that was so inseparable that it was applied to the disciples as well. To belong to one was to belong to the other. So it was natural for the father to take care of them when Jesus left because they already were his children to start with. Second reason um, why he would ask for the protection, it was appropriate to ask for this because they'd already responded positively to the truths that Jesus had revealed to them. They'd already shown that they belonged to, to Jesus by the way they had lived out their Christian life in obedience. Look at verse 6, part C. He says, and they have kept your word. Okay, so they've already responded positively to the truth Jesus taught. They've kept your word. And secondly, in verse 8, he says, For the words which you have given me, I've given to them, and they've received them and truly understood that it came forth from you. So again, these men were described as word keepers. They'd have received them and obeyed them. Now, I think it's important to note the disciples are defined by Jesus as obedient to the word of God, because we know they weren't perfect. We know that. But here's the key, church. They persisted in their faith when others hadn't. When others hadn't. You know, turn with me quickly to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 54. Now, before I read this to you, 
Um, I don't know if you guys will remember this or, will, or, or even know this for that matter, but Jesus had more than 12 disciples. Did you know that? Jesus had more than 12 disciples. Now, there was the inner family, the inner circle, which were the main 12, but other people were disciples of Christ. And many had followed him. Many disciples had followed him outside of the immediate 12. But here's the thing, church. Many had also fallen away and left him when the truth, that's, the truth that he taught got too tough for them to handle. Okay? Let's look at one of them in John 6, 54. Jesus is standing there and he says this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For the, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. After he said this, church, look at the response of the disciples who were following legitimately up to this point. Look at 66. As a result of this teaching, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They, they couldn't handle that teaching. Um, we looked at this months ago, but they didn't like the, what Jesus had said. They were disciples following him. The truth got too tough, and they left Jesus Christ. The disciples here, though, our disciples in John 17, are still defined as keeping the word. So these men have persevered. They've shown trust in Jesus Christ when others have walked away. Even when teachings got tough and the things they didn't like were said, they continued to embrace his truths. Now, why is that important? Well, some of us right now, some of us right now, church, are in a state where we're going through rough experiences. So, we've got financial things to work through. We've got parenting issues to work through. We've got marriage issues to work through. We've got things going on at work. And, and here's the thing, we know that God has revealed in his word how to handle these situations and what we're to do. Now here's the thing, we may not even like what he says about the answer. How many, I mean, like how many of us like the fact of what some things Jesus teaches in terms of how to handle situations we face? Most of the time, I don't like the teachings that he tells us to, me to do. Why would I want to love and cherish my wife when she's been a little bit grumpy as of late? Why in the world would I want to do that? Why would you women want to respect a husband who, in your opinion, doesn't deserve it? He doesn't love and cherish you. Why should you respect them? Right? I mean, it's just as hard for the man as it is the woman, but Jesus says in his commands, respect your husbands, love your wives. Again, I don't like that teaching. But the thing is, and, and, but I also don't want to be like these guys who says, when he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, walks away from him. I want to be the person like Peter. You know what Peter did in this situation? Look at verse, look at verse 67. When Jesus said, Jesus then turns to the 12 and says this, you don't want to go away also, do you? After the other disciples withdraw, Look what Peter says. Simon says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. What's Peter's response? I don't have any other option, Lord. The only other way is if I walk away from you, I, 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 there's no other option for me. I have to follow you. So there's no other option. And the question for us, church, and for me and for you is, where are you and I going to turn when we don't like Jesus' teachings? Where else are you going to turn? Are you going to turn to yourself for wisdom and how to handle a situation? 
You going to go to your parents? You going to turn to another religion for the answers? Or are you and I going to trust in a living creator that loves us so much he's willing to lay his, let down, his life down for us and die for us? Honestly, where are you and I going to turn when the times get tough in the Christian faith? Peter said, and this gets me through tremendous times in my own life, you have a words of eternal life, where else am I going to go? The third reason why Jesus asked for this kind of protection was because of the future role and responsibility these men were going to have in the church's leaders. He knew it was important to ask them not to be protected from delusion, any delusion and deception, knowing the role they were going to have as the future leaders in the church. See, these men were entrusted with a precious treasure. There was a precious treasure entrusted to these men that if lost, would have huge ramifications to the world. That treasure, of course, was the saving truth of the gospel message. It was the word of God. So it made sense then that Jesus had to pray for their protection from these things, knowing that they were his first line of defense in his army. Right? When Pentecost comes and acts, who's out there proclaiming the character of God and the truth of God's word but the disciples? They're the first line. If they get deluded, if they get deceived, in any way, the whole message of Christianity gets a really rough start. And God has to do some pretty crazy things to get it on path. But here's the thing, church. Jesus knew it was only going to be through proper revelation of the word of God that the people were going to be saved. And it was only going to be through their, them making known God's name and character and word that men and women were going to be saved. The word of God was a precious treasure and it had to be spoken. And there, he wanted to protect them from any delusionment. Now, I want to just say something here. My, you know, I've mentioned my time with Dan a lot on Wednesday afternoons, but it proves invaluable just for like the way we handle ministry. Because he asked me a really cool question probably about six months ago. And he said, and I want to just share the story to share with you the importance of God's word in saving people. He said to me, Andrew, have you ever led anybody to Christ in your life in which the Bible was not opened? Now, I'm not talking about like me talking about spiritual conversations like this, and I'm just having these debates back and forth. I mean, in my conversations where this was actually physically open on the table, and I read something to someone that they had to respond to. You know what my answer was? Never. Never. I have never led anybody to Christ in my life where in some point in my evangelism, the Bible was not physically opened in their presence. Never done it. And Dan's been a pastor for 15 years. And I asked him, have you? He said, never. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, isn't it? The word of God has never not been opened in both our ministries. Now, I'm not saying it can't not be. I'm, I'm not saying that it, there's not a way in which it can't not work that way. But isn't it interesting? Two pastors have no experience without the physical Bible being opened to talk to somebody one-on-one -on -one about them coming to Christ. And, my, and the reason I bring this up is that the disciples are given in a treasure. They're given the saving word of the gospel of Christ. And they are to proclaim the words of God. Because that's what's going to lead to salvation. And I can be all fancy and fancy in my, in my evangelistic approaches. And unless I get the truth open, it won't change anything. And God gave me a real picture of this this week. I have a woman I'm discipling right now. 
in an, in an evangelistic way. She's not a Christian, but I'm hoping she comes to this church. She keeps talking about it, but I, and, and I know what her hang-ups are at this point, but I have a feeling she'll be here one day in our church. So I've been discipling her for about three months on a weekly basis, and we get together, and uh, I've been reading other things in the Word of God, and, but uh, intermingling with Scripture here and there. But we're going through this whole session, and she talks about an issue, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stop beating around the bush with her. I'm just going to give her the scripture on the situation. And I opened the Bible and I read that. And she goes, I can't believe you. Where'd you get that from? Is that the Bible? I said, yeah. She goes, that's exactly how I feel and exactly who I am, what I'm struggling with. And she goes, can I have a photocopy of that? Right? I was like 45 minutes into our conversation. What is she saying? There's something about the word of God that is convicting and, and, and says truth in certain ways that nobody else can. Right? It's, the, it's necessary for the scriptures to be open for salvation to occur and to convict change. And I just, I just want to share that with you, just to think about that in your own approach. I'm not, you, you know, you develop friendships, you have spiritual conversations. The whole purpose is to go back and forth. But at some point in your evangelism, you have to open the scriptures because your words don't have power. Your words don't have power, but the word of God does have power. And we're going to look at that one more time in the lessons. Let's finish with verse 12. This is a very interesting uh, verse. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Here, once again, we run into this guy named Judas. This guy named Judas, the son of perdition. Now, I've already preached two sermons on this guy in the last two years. So, because we, teach, because we teach, however, verse by verse, I can't skip this verse just because I've already taught on him twice. But I will say this, church, I'm grateful I had to look at him once again because uh, I've learned something else about him in defending the fact that Judas was a legitimate Christian who turned away from a living God. Um, I know that is not widely accepted, but I want to talk to you about this verse and if you remember, I told you that uh, I was wrestling through a theological issue and I wasn't prepared to preach this until I solved this issue. Well, this is the issue I was working through. But basically, everyone virtually, or everyone I know virtually teaches this, that when Jesus chose Judas, this guy was a bad apple right from the beginning, never had a saving faith, never was a believer. That's the, pro that's the prevalent teaching on Judas. And part of God's predetermined plan was that before Judas was born, he chose this guy to come into the world only to betray Jesus in order to bring uh, God's plan of Calvary into fruition. And so this guy was just like a pawn in God's plan right from the beginning to get Jesus on the cross. And so he was eternally damned right from the start and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, in John MacArthur's um, commentary here, he actually says this when he talks about um, Judas being the son of perdition, the son of lostness. He says, this identifies Judas by pointing to his eternal destiny eternal damnation, okay? That's his quote on that. Here's the thing, church. The assumption is this, that when Jesus speaks of guarding these men and, and making sure that none of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the scripture be fulfilled, they assume that the guarding and the perishing is spiritual in nature. They assume that he was able to eternally secure all the disciples and, and guard them spiritually, but when it came to when it came to um, 
Judas, the physical, or sorry, the spiritual protection was gone. It, he, was a, he was predetermined by the scriptures to disobey, so therefore he was never going to be right with God. What's interesting about this is we find out that this, has not, this guarding has nothing to do with spiritual issues. It has nothing to do with spiritual issues. Turn with me to chapter 18, verses 1 to 9, and we're going to read this whole thing. This is a very fascinating church. Maybe if I do this now, I don't have to do it in a couple weeks when I get here. Okay? Listen to this. It's a very important church because Judas is a, is a mind blower when it comes to theology, right? Okay. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So picture the scene that Jesus is in the, in, the, in the garden. All of a sudden, this huge Roman army comes to Judas to besiege him, to, to arrest him physically, okay? Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered and said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there. So when he said to them, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way, to fulfill the word which he had spoke. Of those whom you had given me, I lost no one. What scripture is he talking about being fulfilled there? The same one in verse 17. Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. That's the same wording as verse 12. Um, I guarded them, and no one of them perished but the son of perdition. So the scripture be fulfilled. The scripture being fulfilled in chapter 18 is the same one he's speaking about in verse 17. But what's the context? They come to physically arrest Jesus. And they ask, and Jesus, I think, intentionally asks, who do you seek? Because the disciples are with them. If they're after the disciples... If they're after the disciples and Jesus, Jesus is like, okay, this is an issue between me and you, not my disciples. So he says, who do you seek? And by them saying Jesus of Nazarene, he's like, okay, I'm glad you're going after just me. By the way, I told you that I'm he. Now let these go their way. Verse 8, let them go. And then let them, so let them go in what way? From physical arrest, from physical harm, right? And then it says this. He, this fulfilled the word of which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. In what way? He didn't fail to physically protect the disciples through the three years of ministry from, uh, from, from this harm, from the arrest of the Romans. <laughs> so the, so, the, so the, the context of chapter 18, verse 1 through 9, is in terms of fulfilling of the prophecy, is the physical protection of the disciples. The one he failed to, or failed to guard, was the one of son of perdition. He actually escaped Jesus, and he went off to the Romans, and so Jesus could not protect him physically. So when it says here in chapter 17, I, I, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, that's not eternal life. That's physical life. But the son of perdition, so the scripture would be fulfilled. So again, I'm just sharing this with you to say, uh, this is, has nothing to do with spiritual life of Judas. This has everything to do with his physical protection. If I didn't do a good job of explaining that, we'll, I know I'll get a second chance in the dialogue. But I want to give you an alternative anyway. 
let's say, let's say it was uh, uh, spiritual to some degree, it still doesn't mean that God predestined them to hell in his, in his big plan. And Leon Morris actually speaks of this, and he does a really good job. And the reason why I like Morris is that he's actually more on the Calvinistic side of theology. He's, when I read his comments, he's very much more like lined up with, say, like where my Bible would be and so on, and certain Calvinist thinking. And yet he doesn't even see God predestining to someone to hell in this passage. Listen to this. Uh, 644. He says, uh, <clears throat> Again, there is the thought of revelation. It was in the power of the God who revealed himself that Jesus kept the disciples. He guarded them safely so that no one perished but Judas, the one doomed to destruction, the son of perdition. This points to the character of Judas rather than his destiny. The son of lostness, the son of perdition, points to his character, not his eternal destiny. The expression means that he was characterized by lostness, not that he was predetermined to be lost. Both parts of this statement are important. The disciples need not fear, for Jesus had kept them so that none of them was lost. And if attention to be drawn to Judas, then it must be said that the Father's will was done both in the eleven and in the one, for the scripture was fulfilled. See what he's saying? This isn't a case of eternal destiny, but God saying, hey, I'm going to make Judas born, he's going to be a eternally damned to hell, he's going to put Jesus on the cross. He's saying, this describes his character, not God's, God's uh, plan for him. And that's important, because again, in our thinking in this church, how can a perfectly loving God create people for the purpose of hell and then say that was for my glory? It just doesn't line up with love. You would never, as parents, say, I'm going to have, I want, when, when I child is born, I'm going to treat them and, and basically neglect them and let them go their own way because, as a way of demonstrating love to them for my glory. You just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't. You'd, you'd do everything you could to invest in these people, in your child. Anyway. Yeah, so hopefully that passage will, will help you uh, understand what's going on in John chapter 17 and give you a new understanding of that verse. Okay, so what lessons can we take away from this? First one is this. In order to be a genuine Christian, one must but embrace both the teachings and character of Jesus Christ. That's verses 6 to 8, right? I manifested your name to the world, and they've kept your word. They've kept your word. And they've embraced the character of, of Jesus Christ. To be a genuine Christian, one must embrace both the teachings and character of Christ. You know what's not in their church? The sinner's prayer. Please don't ever do this if you, in your evangelism. Don't ever say to someone, you just need to pray for God to forgive you and ask him into your heart. Don't do that. That doesn't exist in the scripture. Can you think of anywhere in the Bible where Jesus and a guy interacts and he says, ask Jesus into your heart? Do you have any scripture reference to that? Not a single one. I'm not picking on him because he's done tremendous things for the kingdom, but this is a Billy Graham type attitude towards evangelism. That's Billy Graham's kind of like way of doing ministry, right? I mean, I'm not, the guy's done phenomenal things to the kingdom. I'm not, I'm not discrediting him in any way. He's done more than I have, for sure. But I'm just saying, the sinner's prayer is not part of the scriptures. If you want to help someone come to Christ, they need to confess their sin. Confession is different than asking for forgiveness. They confess and come clean with God. And secondly, they have to now, from that day forward, be willing to embrace the teachings and character of Jesus. Life is always defined by obedience in the Christian life. 
always defined that way. Lesson two. Christians need to be praying for one another, knowing that we are often vulnerable to deception and can easily depart from God's truth. Right? We need to be praying for one another, knowing that we are often vulnerable to deception and can easily depart from the truth of God. It, it, Corinth did it. Paul's whole letter to the First Corinthian church, in the First Corinthians, sorry, was just this constant reminding to get back to truth, get back to truth. They've gone, they've gone so, they departed from so crazy. He had to just completely warn them and say, "You guys are in trouble. You're still Christians, but you're you're being deceived. You're de- deluded by the way you're living out your Christian life." Get back to the basic truths of the gospel message. You know that passage when love, like love is kind, love is all, all these, that, that, always read it, 1 Corinthians 13, I think it is. They always read it at weddings. These two people get up together and they talk about what love is. They read that from Corinthians. When Corinth heard that list, they weren't thinking that was an awesome thing to hear. They were hanging their heads in shame because they weren't doing that. So when Paul read out what love is, they would have been had red beat faces staring at their shoes because they've not been loving. So he's not, he's not saying, congratulations, Corinth, for being such a loving church. He's saying, you got a big X there, and you need to get back to proper love. Because you failed that. You have divisions amongst you. You have, your, you have people in your church that are sleeping with their parents. You've got prostitution going on. You've got divorce and all these things. It's like crazy. You need to get back to love. So Corinth, again, are, they're a good example of being departing from the truth and being deluded and needing back to the basic gospel message. First, I mean, I like 1 Timothy 2, 13, 18. I mean, this is, he's speaking to Timothy about the elders in the church and what's happening there. And he says, that, this I command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the pro- prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keep f- the, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom have handed over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander at one point have had a legitimate faith. But through deception and delusion have shipwrecked it. They, they're the ones that just damaged their own faith. And he says, as a result, I've handed them over to Satan. No, I'm not going to get into what that means. But here's the thing. They weren't part of Satan's kingdom. They, he had, Paul had to hand them over because they, were, they were, um, had shipwrecked their own faith. So again, these are leaders. These are leaders. We, anyone can be deluded. So we need to be praying for one another. Church. Third lesson. In order for salvation to occur, the word of God needs to be spoken. Very simple lesson, but missed often in in, in evangelism. Listen, nothing is going to save anybody but the truth of Scripture. I don't care how clever you and I are in our speech, nothing will save a person except the truth of Scripture. If we don't open the Bible and preach truth, something else other than salvation will occur. It just, it just will. And why is this? Well, because the Word of God has power. Has power. Listen to the description of the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, there's no other book that can judge the thoughts and intentions of a heart or divide soul and spirit or, you know, marrow of your bones. That's why that woman said to me, Andrew, I need a photocopy of that because that, that, scribe, that describes me. That describes me. Like, of course it describes you because God knows the way humans are thinking and the way they're created. <laughs> anyway, 
don't, the, the, the scary thing for us in Canada is in our Canadian sort of culture is we don't want to offend anybody. Well, the word of God is offensive at times, but you're not going to save anybody by not speaking it. Lesson four. Very simple statement, but it's profound in its application. In John chapter 17, Jesus' guarding of Judas has nothing to do with his eternal destiny, but physical protection. John 17, Jesus' guarding of Judas has nothing to do with his eternal destiny, but physical protection.